You're a clone. So... I see the war has finally made its way out here. And I guess I can expect a visit from some droids soon. What's your number and rank? <laughs> My name is Laquane. Cut Laquane. And I'm just a simple farmer. You're a deserter. <laughs> well, I like to think I'm merely exercising my freedom to choose. To choose not to kill for a living. That is not your choice to make. You swore an oath to the Republic. You have a duty. I have a duty. You're right. But it's to my family. Does that count, or do you still plan to turn me in? Do I have a choice? There's over 150 hours of Star Wars on film. This is the Star Wars binge where we select order and elevate the best 40 hours of the Star Wars canon. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado and in Chicago, Illinois, but not for very long is the Daniel Mothershed, playwright, comedian, and pop culture enthusiast. That is true. You, you will soon hear the sound of my voice from a different place. By the time this is posted, that man's going to be living in Colorado. Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> We're joined again by the great TJ Wilson. Hey. We are talking Star Wars and the emotional life of characters. And so we're bringing in TJ who specialized in said things. I, I specialize. Cool. That's, I'll take that. <laughs> You're the most emotional person I know. <laughs> Do you know two people? <laughs> Not true. Actually, Mother Shed, I, gonna I say, think you might actually get that <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, we're jumping into um, one of the standalone episodes, character building episode for The Binge, um, which is called The Deserter. Uh, this is season two, episode 10. I really enjoy this. It's just a one-off standalone episode. They're borrowing from a bunch of pop culture tropes and lots, of, lots to talk about here. But this is a Rex episode. Yeah. I had a bunch of fun watching this one. Ooh. Like as a, I've enjoyed everything that we've watched, but this one really just felt like fun to me. Like it, it, it just felt like immersion into an entirely different planet that mm -hmm. we haven't really seen before. And there's life on that planet that's not just cannon fodder, like we've sort of talked about, and and you just kind of get to experience it. This actually felt like one of the best episodes of Star Trek I'd ever seen. It just happened to be set in the Star Wars universe. That's a great call. Yeah, that, uh, I like that analogy of the like episode of Star Trek because this this felt like it was telling a really important but not canon necessary story. Yep. Like this this is telling a really good and important story, but it's not important to the overall narrative as much. Uh, but it still gives us a better glimpse into sort of the the mindset of some of these characters that we're supposed to really care about without going too hard in a direction to where they have to do a whole arc about it. Like a good one-off, but still an important part of the universe. Love the Star Trek analogy there. Because a lot of times that is what Star Trek does, is it places the characters in positions where they have to explore their inner life. They're going where no one's gone before, but what it really is about is the inner life of these these characters and exposing that. And we need to see that with Rex. Mm -hmm. I think this show allows more room for it than the films and the other stories do. Like, you don't have enough time to really show the life of these side characters. A series gives you the opportunity 
Yeah. Well, and there's there's a, a pretty significant amount of movement that has to happen between the beginning of the stories of the Clone Wars and the end of the stories of the Clone Wars. And and that movement is already displayed in the main characters in the material that we have before this. Mm-hmm. Like we get to see more of Anakin's turn throughout the Clone Wars. Yeah. But we don't necessarily need more of it. We get to see some of it, but we don't need it to understand how we got from little boy Anakin and Phantom Menace to Darth Vader. Yep. We already have that story. We just get more details. We do not have any stories about the movement of the clones and the movement of Ahsoka from loyal Padawan to who she becomes. That's well said. And that's, yeah, that's what this is for. I totally agree with that. Yeah, one of the things that I missed in our last, uh, one of our previous episodes is that you know it's a partially Ahsoka's story because it begins with Ahsoka coming down a ramp in the Clone Wars animated feature film, and then the last arc ends with Ahsoka coming down a ramp, hmm. and the bookends, at least, are certainly there. Yeah, well, that's interesting. The things that we do cover in the Siege of Mandalore arc where Rex lands by the end of this whole series, some of those questions, some of that processing, it's starting here, yeah? He has a, a monologue, not a monologue, but he has, he has a very passionate conversation with Ahsoka at the end of the Siege of Mandalore where he's reminiscing about whether it was all worth it and he's been processing. Uh, I've known no other way. It gives us clones all a mixed feeling about the war. Many people wish it never happened, but without it, we clones wouldn't exist. But that's not where he is in this episode. Right. But this episode is interesting in... It's interesting in that it shows us how he could get there. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't get there by the end of this episode, but he certainly starts walking in that direction. That's why I think this episode is so valuable. Mm -hmm. Daniel and I have done a recording of uh, an episode where Rex shows up, shoots this enormous monster, takes blood from the monster, and smears it across one of his fellow warriors' chests. And he just comes in like he is the boss of all things and knows exactly who he is, what he's about. I'm a warrior meant to do a job. And there are times in life where that's where you're at. And there are times in life where you actually have a near-death experience and have to have an existential crisis and talk to somebody about it. And you move. Love the hell out of this episode because of that. Well, But also just as human beings, most people are both. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like very few people are just like a stone cold general and very few people are just Mm -hmm. in existential free fall all the time. I mean, and that's what, that's why this episode is so great. That's why some of the episodes of this show are so stellar because the movies only present you one version of each of these characters. Whereas of all things in this cartoon, we get to experience like full fledged people that experience like a myriad of emotions Mm -hmm. and, and personality traits, just like real human beings. True. I'm I'm also thinking about wrestling with like he doesn't really get into it, but you can see it starts here of wrestling with whether or not his choices are part of his programming. Yep, lot of conversations. We'll we'll get into that. 
yeah, in terms of choice for clones. Mm-hmm. And it was also interesting, which is speaking of cho- you see him you see him make the first choice that goes against his programming and goes against the protocol that he's supposed to have. Mm-hmm. It's like the it's like the first I miss that this sort of Javert moment of of choosing to look the other way despite what the law might be is the first time I think this happens with this character. That is so obvious now that you say it, and I totally missed it. I'm now going to sing some selections from Les Mis, if if you'll allow me. (laughs) (laughs) One last idea that I wanted to bring to the table here is um, I was having a conversation with a guy the other day about Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And there are some movies with Schwarzenegger where he is just strong in charge the entire time. Commando, the first Terminator. Jingle all the way. Pump... (laughs) Pumping iron. He's just confident Schwarzenegger. And then there are these other movies in which he's in peril. And because he is so big, when he's in peril, it kind of elevates the feeling of peril. That's why Predator really works. He comes in strong, in charge, ripped. And when he looks afraid in that movie, it's like, oh, this is really an intimidating scene. You know, Total Recall kind of has that going for it, and maybe the second Terminator, Kindergarten Cop. Uh, yeah. If ch- if childbirth is uh, painful enough to hurt even that guy, it must be for real. <laughs> There's something about those two faces of Schwarzenegger where we've seen Rex in the first one. He is strong, in charge, confident, knows what's up. He's the guy that you definitely want on your team. He's in a spot where he is vulnerable in this episode, and it brings so much life to the character that we wouldn't have otherwise seen. Well, and they even say that at the beginning of it, like as he's going off. Yeah, Obi Wan and and I can't remember who it is have that have that moment where Rex goes off, and and, and they're clearly like in awe of him. True. Yeah, he's ta- he's just talking to Cody. Yeah. Yeah, Cody. That, thank that, you. That's a good call. They are elevating his yeah his power, and then all of a sudden, boom! It's taken away. I miss that. That's good. I don't necessarily think it takes away his power because I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's anything necessarily powerless with with being more vulnerable and emotional. And I think, but Rex does. Well, yeah. I think it humanizes him from from looking at it as an uh, an audience member. I think it it humanizes him as opposed to renders him powerless. That's a a classic strongman issue. Is that it is important to them that they don't experience or showcase weakness Mm -hmm. because any type of vulnerability means that they are not strong or capable or whatever it is they're trying to to project and really a big lesson that they need to learn is that being normal is not weak yeah getting shot in the chest by a sniper droid is doesn't make you weak what's interesting is there's the physical element. He clearly is injured and can't fight the way that he wants to and even is told by this person who's no longer a soldier that he's not valuable in that way anymore. But his weakness, his principles, his life principles are also being questioned by someone who's more experienced, by somebody who has a lot of passion, by somebody who's clearly competent and... He is vulnerable in those spaces as well, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And and somebody who understands his values and doesn't hold them anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's I think one of the really big sort of subtler parts of this the juxtaposition of these two characters is yep. that that Cut understands Rex's values because he had them. Yep. He even says I am as close to you as any life form can be. Yep. Like he understands Rex completely, but he's also changed. And <clears throat> arguably is like the fully formed perfected version of Rex. You know, he's got all of the things that Rex has mm-hmm. plus all this other stuff. Like he he is a whole person when you meet Cut versus Rex who is sort of half of that. He's only got one mm-hmm. of the things that fills out a personality i find this person very difficult to talk to in my own life where i can i'm having a conversation with somebody over beers they're clearly 10 years older than me and i'm saying this is why i believe this where i'm at this is how i'm navigating the world and they're and if they come at me and say i i used to be in exactly that spot and this is what i did and this is why it was meaningful and i see the path and i'm just like oh that's that's hard for me to get my heart and mind and body around. <laughs> I realize that there's probably wisdom here that I'm going to learn through pain later on, but I just can't get there right now. Well, and if you were yeah. <laughs> more like Rex, you would also say, "Don't tell me what I don't know." He pushes into principles. Well, as you say, that's also that's clearly the last four years, but specifically this year. Don't tell me what I don't know is. I guess America's motto. Mm-hmm. What do you mean four years? <laughs> I mean, it's been forever, but it's re- we've really like, like we've been on the out of town tryout for so long. Now we're on, now we're on Broadway in the, in the don't tell me things that I don't know stage of, of this show. Props to the show creators in placing this kind of conversation early in the Clone Wars. It's not like they're trying to catch up in, you know, oh, in season five, we need to make sure that Rex kind of has some existential issues in his mind so that we can really land the plane with a full internalization of what the war was like they're doing this up front in season one and two season one and two are the stuff for kids it is much more black hat white hat storytelling and yet this one's sitting there ready for us to get into the heart of one of the characters that's primary and charting a path for the future of the show too yep Almost like they had vision of what they wanted to do with it. Uh. Daniel, you're a fan of some opening proverbs. Yes, I am. Uh, this one, I liked. It did. It didn't blow me away like some of the other ones. I just, I saw it and I was like, yeah, that's probably true. It is the quest for honor that makes one honorable. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> it. It. I, I'm surprised because that... because almost without fail, every one of the proverbs has has just hit me. And I've had to like pause to reflect on it. Whereas with this one, I was like, yeah. The philosopher in me loves this because I like virtue. I like the focus of virtue in ethics. And this is about, it's about your heart and your character and what you're pursuing. That's really the focus of the good, happy life. And this kind of, that has that as its target. We're going to end up talking about that element in Rex and other characters. You got anything there too? Mainly jokes. <laughs> I like jokes. That's fine. Like how the uh, the point of Lost is the journey, not the not the end of the story. <laughs> <And> <laughs> jokes aside, I, that like that 
I think that's that's what this is about is that it's not about being honorable is less important than trying to be honorable. Like it's it's the journey that makes you honorable, not mm. the result. Truth. Like a lot of the proverbs, it's it's focusing on the heart of the episode. It seems to me that this is about Rex's heart. What's going on there? And we're gonna see. Narrator, of course, comes in and yells, Fugitive! Though the Republic has won many decisive battles against the Separatist army in the Outer Rim. Which entirely doesn't matter because it's all orchestrated by Palpatine anyway. The Jedi have failed to capture the elusive General Grievous. After specifically targeting members of the Jedi Council, a trap was set. But following a fierce confrontation, the droid general managed to escape to the surface of the planet Salukamai. Now the chase is on as General Kenobi leads a squadron of clone troopers and closes in on his desperate target. Quick way to insert that into the binge. We are placing this episode right after the episode Arc Troopers, and the narration works. Grievous is fleeing a fierce confrontation on Kamino, and now he's being chased by Obi-Wan. There are shots of these other battles. We might imagine a pursuit that takes place after he fails on Kamino and now is retreating. I like this story that there's been a defeat and now there's a chase. You know what I mean? It's not very common. There's a very famous historic example of this that I want to bring up. How on earth does General Grievous keep staying alive? Like all he does (laughs) is lose and run away. True. True. Like, over and over and over again, he loses and runs away and just keeps living. Yeah. Slippery. I think because as ridiculous as that character is, and I believe I have said this on previous podcasts, or or if they haven't been released yet, I will go on to say this. I think Grievous is a ridiculous character, but... (laughs) <laughs> he's clearly very shrewd, as you see in this episode. Like he, He's able to spot the... Grievous is one of those guys, it's like, when I go into a room, I already know where the exit is. And, and, and he knows where it is when the battle starts. So when it looks like he might get got, he can, he can like spider crawl backwards and disappear. Like he's, ju- he's just good at getting out of problems. That's all he's good at. Yeah. There's something about that villain who causes chaos and then runs away. Causes chaos, runs away. It, that's it's just the Joker. If the Joker yeah. sucks, <laughs> <laughs> and had a amazing lightsaber collection, which he probably would. He probably would. That's probably true. One of the fun Jokers, not that Joaquin Phoenix version. That would. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you dig it on? You like the Joker? I still haven't seen the Joker, so I shouldn't go down this it, rabbit trail, but. You could it it was like two hours of just being like, yep, this is watching somebody <laughs> act. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you on that. That's how I felt with uh, what's the oil movie with? Oh God, Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, there will be blood. Yeah, yeah it's just, it's just it's like a two hour scene workshop of like of like, yes. oh look how hard that guy's acting. Okay. This isn't identical, but we have noted that Grievous is the Robert E. Lee of the Separatists, and this was the situation following Gettysburg. Lee loses Gettysburg, and then he's on the run. And it's a really interesting period in American history in this like just one-month period. Lee is on the run. He's lost to Meade at Gettysburg. Lee had gone a, uh, into Union territory. It was the first time he was desperate. Grant was winning 
uh, along the Mississippi and in Vicksburg. And so Lee knows I need to win this war now or else we lose because it's going to be this slow war of attrition from here on. So Lee pushes too hard at Gettysburg. He ends up losing, and then he has to flee. And Lincoln is shouting, you got to crush him now. You got to crush him now. And Meade cannot get up himself and his troops to, to finish off Lee, and Lee is able to escape into the South. And Lincoln is absolutely furious. It's like you have him in the palm of your hand and you needed to crush him. And now this war is going to go on for more years. And apparently it's an unsent letter. It's He wrote it out furious and then he's put it in a drawer for all of history to know. But he didn't send it to the guy who he was actually pissed at. I bet he probably wasn't planning on keeping that, but he uh, had some things happen that prevented him from <laughs> taking care of that. It was probably yeah. He wrote it and was like, "All right, when I get back, I'm gonna, I am gonna uh, have somebody look at this letter and then decide whether or not this is the right thing to send." Fun fact: He gets shot a year and a half later, and on the letter itself, he writes, "Left unsent." Oh, well. so it, just to give you a mindset, here's. Side note, this is here's some of your Enneagram nine <laughs> TJ for Lincoln. Oh, I've done that. As as uh, in my personality type, I need a third party to step in and say, Don't send that letter. Because <laughs> I write them <laughs> and we'll send them. This is wisdom. Yeah. But that's the situation here is there's been a huge battle and a huge defeat. The separatists have been defeated and they don't have the power to to reinforce your know, position. And so Grievous, the general of the army, is on the run. We must find the way off this planet before they find us. Kenobi, we need to hurry and find an escape pod. It doesn't look like he has a very big army either around him. He's got like 50 droids, all of which are losing power, as we'll see. That was so fun. Like we 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 continue to say how how entertaining the battle droids are, and watching them, watching them slowly run out of juice and kind of act all sluggish and slow, and mm -hmm. is just just great comic relief. So that's what we see. We see Grievous has had to crash land on a planet. This planet is Seleucami, and he has landed. He even sees the Republic f forces flying overhead. And he needs to get out of there. And really, that's his only ambition, is how do I sneak out of this? I don't care about my army. I don't care about any of our weapons or resources. How do I get out of here? Yeah. Well, and I, I feel like that that sort of highlights what we need to know about who Grievous is, Exactly. period. Yep. Is that he does not care even a little bit about protecting his soldiers. I mean, which is fine. They're droids. It doesn't matter. They don't have souls. Uh, <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> so it doesn't. It he he doesn't care what happens to them. He is fine leaving a trail of droid bodies, who just ran out of power, instead of allowing them to ride on the animals that are carrying the cargo. Like he only cares about himself. You will notice that actually the 
the reason that we think that Grievous is an asshole is because the droids have souls and he is abandoning them. If they were just computers, I like I threw away a computer the other day and I didn't think about it for a minute. <laughs> yeah, but there are people across the universe in a <laughs> in a They're time a long, me. long time from now that are lit reading this story <laughs> and saying he threw away a computer. That computer had a soul. <laughs> <laughs> that laptop cared about its future, man. Well, Grievous says, Contact the fleet. Sir, our transmitter is destroyed. There is only one escape pod that survives. This is a good little plant. I missed it. I realized that they need to get somewhere, but I missed how this all worked. There's a pod, and apparently this has our salvation off this planet in it. And Grievous says, We must get there as quickly as possible. Let's hope the transmitter is still intact. Now, find me some transportation. Do you know who Grievous is? This just kind of, this, the Joker comparison was fine, but actually, in thinking about it. Hit me. General Grievous is Christopher Guest as the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride. He is a very flashy, showy character who insists everyone's got to push forward, push forward, push forward, and do this thing. But when it finally comes down to it, and he's face-to-face with the guy, and they're ready to go, he just turns and runs away. Because he doesn't actually mm. have what it takes to back up the, mm. the, the, the stuff he's pushed through this entire thing. And it's what makes him... That character is great. Grievous is not, but but it's it's that kind of a similar villain that can't back up the villainy that they've been pushing. Right. Better a live dog than a dead lion kind of philosophy in his head. Yeah. I hate that, dude. Whoever believes that, you suck. <laughs> like, <laughs> send your tweets. Kenobi doesn't have the transportation problem. We see him on top of a six-legged walker. First time we see walkers in the binge. These are called ATTEs. Early, smaller relative of the Adat. Everybody, I'm sure, who's my age has these kind of stories. But the walkers are important to me in that one of my few memories of my parents being together is a Christmas that we had in the house that I grew up in. They got divorced when I was seven. And I remember this Christmas, and I remember getting in the Adat. And the walkers have that space in my heart and mind and memory of it's not just Star Wars, but it's also the fact that I was introduced to some of this stuff in a space that I was developing and actually had my happiest memories. Mm -hmm. It's not just something that I enjoy seeing, but it actually has something like it's written into my DNA at this point where it's like this is stability and wonder and joy and things are, are right in the world that felt like an overshare. And I'm trying to spin it as optimistically as possible, but I'm looking at your faces and you're really concerned, <laughs> but I, re- but, but I liked seeing the walkers. This, this is the first time they're in the binge. And I was like, yay. No, I think that's great. This is actually the second time this week I've heard that specifically that yeah. about, about the walk, uh, uh, an author I follow on Twitter, just in talking about star Wars had, had said something about, I remember having that taking it outside. Like they were on vacation or something somewhere where they're from California, but it was snowing. They're like, we, we had the, the walker and we took it outside and we, we made yeah. Hoth and it was, so it, so it is both star Wars fandom and 
this wonderful, like formative nostalgia, you know, the most important things in your life are the things you experience up to, what do they, they say up to like 13 before like the door kind of shuts. So that's like, which is why like meeting people that were influential to you when you were a kid is huge. I met Weird Al at a Comic-Con and could barely speak because he was one of the most (laughs) important things in my life for so long. Versus other people I've gotten to meet at conventions and other things. It's like, great to meet you, big fan, have a nice day. Because you became a fan of them when you were 30. And, and it wasn't it doesn't imprint yeah. in the same way. So I, I was really just trying not to cry was the expression on my face. Because that resonates with me a lot. I, th- I think that's really wonderful. Remember when you said I was the most emotional person <laughs> you know, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he did pivot and say it was me. So I think, I think, I think we're proving that. Beginning of Empire. End of the Last Jedi and then the Battle of Scarif all have these walkers. They symbolize something in the Star Wars universe, and I think they're they're worth just pausing on. I realize the Jedi are using them in this moment. I think the 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 transition from what is clearly a transport a military transport vehicle, yeah, to what becomes a military dominance vehicle it's a good like the atte is that what these are called correct these little ones that that stand no more than 20 feet high yep they're little walkers yeah like you could climb up into one fairly easily like they're they're designed for military transport yep the ATATs at on hoth those things are designed to crush things yeah and to destroy locations very intimidating they're huge they're and and like they're not fast they're not like their their sole function is to intimidation and destruction hadn't thought about that but part of the thing that empires need to dominate is terrorism Nuclear weapons are about terror. We don't use them. We just want you to know we have them and that you can't do what you want to do because we will obliterate everything you care about. Right. And and you see this in the, the, the ships, too. Like, the, the Republic's cruisers mm-hmm. eventually evolve into Star Destroyers, and, yep. like, they just keep getting bigger the bigger the Empire gets. Yep to where you get to the Death Star. Yeah. I also think with the with the walkers, they're almost representative of the 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 slow kind of stilted movements of of fascism. Mm. Mm. To where the, these things are huge and they don't move very fast, but but your average person cannot do anything to to resist them. Even though you could probably run away from them, you're not going to be able to. Even though they're slow, even though they are a little bit clunky, they will gradually destroy everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the empire. Ooh. That's fascism. <laughs> One last note here. I assume that the the AT-ATs as well as this machine are borrowed from Tolkien and the Mummakill that are attacking Ministereth. These are the huge elephants. Um, but Hoth feels like the stuff that we see in Return of the King. Uh, you know, you have the army of elephants that are marching on a wall. They clearly make Hoth, the base at Hoth, much smaller. <laughs> but, you know, the, the 
elephants are these enormous creatures coming forward and they have, you know, all the soldiers on the side of them. Well, and that's just history, right? Hannibal coming over the Alps on elephants. You know, I mean, that's, that's, it's great. Exactly. In terms of Star Wars using these historic examples, Hannibal going over the Alps, borrowing from Tolkien, using these organic images, here with the Republic, they become mechanized. And that's always a big move in Star Wars, when something organic becomes mechanized, but then it goes dark. You know, Luke has a mechanical hand. You know, the droids are all mechanical. And yet there's still something of the humanity there. But when they turn dark, you know, when Vader loses all his limbs and becomes a machine, or I suppose here with Grievous, who's become a machine, the adats, I love the, the evolutionary image, I think is really important that these machines eventually become instruments of terror. They were to produce order. It was the cops producing order with the, the tools that we gave them. And then all of a sudden we got real issues. This is, this is a contemporary problem for us. Let's get into this episode, by the way. <laughs> Rex pulls up and says, General Kenobi. Sir, the cruise has returned to orbit. Any sign of Grievous? I believe we've found Grievous's ship. And we're rolling. We are on a new planet, as Daniel said. This is Seleucami. Quick backstory on Seleucami. Seleucami is an outer rim planet. Its name means oasis, and it appears to have been a neutral planet prior to this episode. But it gets into a whole hot mess here in the next few years. And I think knowing that going into this episode really matters because of Cut and Cut's family and what they are seeking to be as a family and knowing, hey, the war's coming out for you. Yeah. And actually, Cut knows it. We'll, we'll come to that scene at one point. Almost like the slow march of fascism is inevitable. Come on. You got to <laughs> cut that stuff off, apparently. If, haven't we learned from Bob Dylan songs? For God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you need to kick some folks in the balls. Okay, so... This planet uh, actually appears just twice in Star Wars on film. It's in this arc, and in Order 66, we see a brief shot of a Jedi who is on a speeder bike, and she's with a set of clones. You'll remember this. It's very quick, but it's the speeder bike scene once Order 66 is initiated, and the speeder bikes kind of pull back slightly, and then they fire on her, and she is destroyed. That uh, Jedi is named Stas Ali. And she is essentially a Jedi who is overseeing the battles taking place on this planet. And we know there's battles taking place on this planet because in Revenge of the Sith, Obi-Wan says... You've missed the reports on the Outer Rim sieges. I'm sorry, I was held up. I have no excuse. In short, they are going very well. Seleucami has fallen, and Master Voss has moved his troops to Bos Pity. And that battle is actually displayed in some comics interesting fact here by the time of rogue one there are soldiers who are actually being recruited from Seleucami. Yeah, the captain that is uh in a skirmish with Saul Guerrera there early in rogue one he's actually from Seleucami. so it's as though at this point in time if you look at the history it's like it's a peaceful planet it's in the outer rim it's like people are even fleeing from the war that they know is has engulfed the galaxy and they're just like i just want to create a farm and live there with my family by the time of rogue one those people's kids 
are being drafted into the empire. And that's kind of how we should understand this location. It just shows the pointlessness of war too, like the the the, the destructive, un, unnecessary nature of it. Like, look at this like beautiful green planet with the trees and the landscapes, and there are children on it, and and animals that are docile and friendly. And seeing it like that is really nice. And then the juxtaposition of where it goes, I feel like just this show frequently does such a beautiful job of being like, look how meaningless. Yep. The, the these these wars of stars are like look how meaningless and destructive it all is begins to really come into play around this time because we'll see this much more in further seasons you only get hints of it in the first two seasons of the show and again notice just again how clever responsible thoughtful intentional those overseeing the canon are here it just can't be said enough that what Feige does for Marvel, you know, Filoni and Lucas, Lucas is is intricately involved at this point in time with the creation of the show, what they're doing, you know, for the Star Wars universe. Yeah. I actually think we will need to talk about this at some point. I think Lucas grows a lot during the creation of the show. I think he doesn't have the pressure. Mm. I don't know what it's like to create a movie and have it be a global phenomenon that's got to be a massive amount of pressure and good for him that he steps up to that plate and in the sequel does what very few artists have ever done i mean the accomplishment of empire strikes back can't be overemphasized he crushes that pitch he has the biggest movie in the world and then he makes one of the best movies of the 80s and he does everything right. He steps away from director. He hires somebody who is absolutely competent in character. And then he builds a universe. It's, it's an artistic achievement that just doesn't happen. You know how many people with billions of dollars have been chasing that dream for the last 30 years? You know? Well, and I think, you, I think one of the reasons why the prequels don't work as well, mm-hmm. I think... It's because he it's because he sort of unlearned the lessons he learned with Empire and Return of the Jedi. He's he's trying to hold everything with the prequel films. Yep. Because it almost feels like he he thinks that he can. Like there's a there's maybe a little too much ego happening in those mm-hmm. films and that's why they really don't work. Mm-hmm. I think it is definitely commendable like you're saying for him to kind of step back and give so much of this to Dave Filoni, to John Favreau and some of these other guys. He's still there, he's still involved, but I think it takes a tremendous amount of maturity to be like oh th- people hated these three things that i made but want to yep. see more of this world how do we make sure that happens he, he could have doubled down and said i'm going to release four hour cuts of everything i've ever made regardless of the fact that you know none of you wanted it and hate it but he didn't yep i can say this as an older artist that i really appreciate the times where people in my life allowed me to to make some mistakes as an artist it sucks to be George Lucas and have the platform you have and not be able to have that kind of permission. I mean, I suppose he can make Willow. He can make Red Tail. You know, he can make these other... Howard the Duck. <laughs> it's it's hard. It's hard to say. I, I really want to experiment here because I'm an artist and I... You know, the only reason Star Wars works is because it's an experiment that's never been tried before. And to get as much grief... In a lot of that, you know, clearly in my dorm room conversations have 
let me tell you all the things that I hate about Attack of the Clones. But there's something about, I, I, I just want to earmark how courageous he is in stepping up to the plate again and spending millions of dollars of his own money on this TV show. Anyway, side note. You also learn, I, you know, all three of us make things like, yeah, you learn way more from the not successful things that you make than if all you did was make Empire Strikes Back, you'd never learn anything. Right. This is where you just say the fanboys on this. George Lucas grew during this time, and it's it's worth just seeing him as a man and appreciating somebody who is in their arena creating things, spending millions of dollars to create things of his own cash and putting his heart and passion into it and really not mailing it in. You know, if you see some of the documentaries that are on the Blu-rays for Clone Wars creation, he's always in there. He has enormous credibility and power, especially when he's at Skywalker Ranch and he's surrounded by people who are on his payroll. There are pictures of him everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, but he's giving these kids authority like you don't have Dave Filoni today if Lucas didn't give his best energy and creative control to to 25 year old you know it's just worth noting well done oh yeah so we ended with the Seleucami stuff and that the citizens of the Republic are fleeing the war for spaces of peace only to find themselves engulfed again and so when Grievous, the general of the army, crashes on your planet, that's what's going on. And so we see him with his droids, and he's marching them to that pod. This, by the way, it's another MacGuffin. We've talked about this a handful of times, but Star Wars routinely, in very tasteful ways, uses MacGuffins. MacGuffins are the object of the villain's desire. R2-D2 is being pursued by the Empire. Grogu is being pursued by, you know, these former Imperial officers. Here it's the case, it's a MacGuffin just for this episode, but it's so important to the turn. Grievous is pursuing this pod. It's somewhere, and he is driving his forces towards it. And that that's kind of the background for all the events that happen. Well, and also, you, ju- I think, in a, sh- in a show with Star Wars in the title, you just need, you need some threat. Yeah, I don't agree with what I'm about to say because I think you can, but I think most people would assume you can't just have an episode that's them on this planet and and seeing the humanity of Captain Rex. Like you must have some background threat. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think you can do it, but well, there's I mean, there's no reason for them to be on the planet otherwise. Right, no. Some of our favorite character moments take place in these larger conflicts. Mm. Lawrence of Arabia comes to mind. There's massive internal work being displayed in that movie, but it's in the midst of this enormous global war. Well, that's what my my favorite World War II movie is Jojo Rabbit <clears throat> as of mm-hmm. late, and and yep. that whole movie is backdropped in World War II, yet it's, it's just about the relationship between these two kids, these two kids in this house together. Spot on. And that's... And and yet the commentary on the larger conflict of war and hatred and bigotry and everything else just it just hangs over it. 
And it's great. I'll probably say this a handful of times throughout this podcast. My wife teaches history at the University of Northern Colorado. She hates all the details of battles and war. And here's the military machinery. And this is the type of gun they're using. And this is how Sherman decided to do this with these kinds of cannons and et cetera. Thousand percent sociology for her. It's tell me about the person who is a citizen during this time and what their life is like. And there's just so much rich character depth to be mined there. When you look at history, human beings are deeply fascinating. <laughs> and that's what's going on here. That's what make those, makes those David McCullough history books so great. Yeah. His true. 1776, his John Adams. I know there are other ones, but those are the only two I've read. Or Truman is brilliant. Yeah. Or even uh, Hamilton. Like that's what makes Hamilton so great because yeah. it's about the human beings. True. Hamilton's a good example of that, but in terms of pop culture, it's it's not just about the American Revolution. It's let's let's try and get as small as we can and really get into the heart of some folks. Let's actually talk about their marital strife and there's an affair that takes place. Or even like let let's talk about George Washington as a guy who had fears. Yes. In addition to a bunch of other problematic things, but you know, like specifically with that musical, I think that they the way they deal with specifically some of the generals and leaders is very humanizing in the same way that this episode kind of humanizes people. Yeah, doesn't that come back to what works in this episode? Don't you want to see really as close as you can the real heart of Rex, who's this character who, for those who who have really invested in. All of the Star Wars canon, Rex is a top five character. For folks who love the original trilogy only, that's not going to be true. But for people who just love everything about Star Wars, Rex is up there for him. He's. I mean, I'm. I'm doing the binge along with our our listeners as well, so I'm not super familiar with it. He's already up there for me, and I've really not. Yeah. I haven't spent the time with him that I have the characters that I love from the original films, but he's already moving mm -hmm. up there because, because of episodes like this, Daniel, I got good news. Yes. It gets better. Well, to, to really drive that point home, like this is one of the points where I start actually giving a crap about Rex. That's, and you need that. Yeah. For those of you who see the entirety of our binge list, there's only a handful of episodes from season one and two that make it in. The reason this one's in is absolutely because this is Rex character building that it's not just required, but it's really good. Yeah. We see uh, Grievous marching his droids towards that pod, and they are complaining. Some again, Daniel, you and I are fans of the battle droid humor. I'm I like I think this one works. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> they are all of them are saying my power is low, the power I can't go on. It's dear master, can we have some water, please? Well, and the fact that they gave them everybody's impression of like I'm running out of like they just, like that's what everybody has ever like imitated a robot running out of power has done, and they just they just did it, and I love that. I'm not a huge fan of the child humor parts of these stories, uh, but I I am really struck by the like pairing these. Clearly written to make kids laugh, droids. Yes, with like, like this horribly sadistic. This character is for adults. 
grievous. Yeah. Like the way that he treats them. I'm I I'm continually reminded of Maleficent <laughs> in Sleeping Beauty. Okay. Like dealing with her underlings. The goblins and stuff. Like yeah. she's you part of her evil comes out in how she treats the ineptitude of the people that are serving her. Mm. And like like Grievous is all about that. He does not care at all about what they're saying and he's he's sick of it. Like like he's he's it's not just that he doesn't care about them. He's annoyed and frustrated that they aren't better. And seems to not be able and, to know that. Like when when he when he asks them like how is it that your batteries are almost drained? They're like, well, because you're running on the thing. Like, he's just unable to tell. Yeah. He just doesn't care. You are here to serve me until such time that I dispose of you on this planet and leave you by, you know, to the our oppositional forces to be taken right. into captivity. Which he does with one of them. He yeah. kills one of them. Like, that's that's how little regard he has. Exactly right, and this is actually the scene. Sir, we need to get our power recharged. Not this again! How could your power cells be so depleted? You would not let us ride on one of those creatures with you, sir. Um, what would you call those, like, uh, beasts? They're pack mules. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you would allow us... They're carrying the stuff, not the droids, and he, he doesn't even give them the... The the right to be counted as his stuff. As the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> stuff is more important here. Yeah. You would allow us to close down for a moment, guys. And lightsaber is pulled out. That droid's cut in half. Any more complaints? Uh, no, 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 I don't think no. no That's no. what I thought. Now let's find that pod. <laughs> the kid version of this one of the droids says (laughs) (laughs) that is for the nickelodeon crowd for sure (laughs) (laughs) on the other side the republic forces find grievous's ship cody is looking through it he says normal housing intakes are still warm this couldn't have happened too long ago the crew compartment's almost entirely destroyed We'll split into teams. Rex, take Jesse, Hardcase, and Kicks and search those wetlands. Yes, sir. Cody, you, Cries, and I will pick it up from here. And Rex, if you get a visual on Grievous, contact us before you engage. All set up. I mean, this is just, you know, getting people where they need to be. They split up. The four clones go away on speeder bikes. I'm not a motorcycle guy, but I am a Return of the Jedi guy. And whenever these speeder bikes are on film... I get excited. Because they look awesome. They just do. Yeah, they do. I want to ride one of those. They just look fun. Yeah. The first trailer for The Mandalorian Season 2 had somebody riding a spear bike down the side of a cliff, and man, I was all in. Had to rewind that 12 times. Even seeing him in Season 1 of The Mandalorian with with the Jason Sudeikis stormtrooper riding around on him, you're like, damn, that looks like so much fun. Mm-hmm. I remember the toy of this. Do you re- like the Kenner toy had a button in the back? Like you would you would fly him around with your with your hand, but you could always hit the button with your thumb, and it was it it, it blew up the the yeah. speeder bike. And it would throw <laughs> you know it cut it in half and throw the the character. Just so much fun. Those those classic Star Wars toys are the best. Kenner did a great job. 
Good for them. Got a bunch of them in a box somewhere. Like they're they're <laughs> I, they're the best. Kelly has positioned all of mine into sadomasochistic poses on my shelf, which I refuse to to change because I think it's hilarious. But this is like <laughs> these were set up really nice, and now <laughs> hey, don't judge. Maybe they like how they're set up now. <laughs> Have you seen Toy Story? They come to life at night and go back into position. <laughs> As Rex goes away, Cody says, Rex is a smart man. Indeed. Always thinking on his feet. I think this is inserted by the creators for a reason. I would love to talk about this. This seems like an important line for the viewer. So do you guys got thoughts on this? It's it's a really quick way to establish what everybody needs to know about Rex that like, not only is somebody under his command impressed by him, somebody who is above him in Obi-Wan Kenobi also finds him admirable and impressive. And in, in two lines, you get all of that, as opposed to taking a 10-minute mm-hmm. scene to set it up with him being directly involved in that. And it also sort of primes the audience for the fact that something's going to happen to Rex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> both both like, those things is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like... If this was a Joss Whedon story, Rex would be dead in the next scene. <laughs> you know, no. That um, I think that, like, like for me, it 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 gave me the impression that, especially on the heels of Obi Wan saying, "Do not engage without telling us first, It gave me the impression that Rex's team is going to be the ones that find uh, Grievous, mm-hmm. and Rex is going to get killed because he engages grievous yeah who is way above him battle speaking but fight wise whatever words work there i like battle speaking <laughs> what i'm trying to do. yeah yeah <laughs> like like rex has does not stand a chance facing grievous and and this yeah. these lines made me think that rex is going to be the one that finds grievous and is going to get killed by him yeah pa- it paints a target on him mm-hmm one of the few flaws of the binge is that we wouldn't know this, but Rex has been in 24 episodes and an animated film by this point if you were just watching it straight through. But I couldn't name a spot where they say, we're really going to pause for a minute and focus on this character and his inner life. And so we're nearing the end of the second season of this show, and now we're really going to hit this. That struck me, and also... Daniel and I have talked about this, that we've come to care about some of the characters. Obi-Wan Kenobi is one of the characters we already care about, and we trust Kenobi's judgment. And when he lends high credibility to a character, as an audience, we're supposed to say, oh, okay, if he affirms Joe, then we should trust Joe. And obviously, that's just all over this character already comes across as trustworthy but here it's there's affection between both Cody and Kenobi as they see him going away soldiers begin scouring the wreckage of Grievous's pod one of them Chris says these droids are too gone to give us any good intel here's one let's load the droid in the tank we'll inspect it on the go I like that that I like that that guy's name is Chris. 
Like all all of these, they're either just yeah. trooper whatever, or it's it's cut up Rex, all these kind of badass names. And then there's hi Chris, just such a like normal thing to be called. Chris gets my award for having the worst haircut of any of the clones. He's got like this blonde comb over. Look, he's I'm, like fifteen. <laughs> Nobody has a good haircut at fifteen. <laughs> well, and he's the one named yeah. Chris. This is also why the clones are getting really unwise tattoos. It, you, they're, they're, I forgot about this. They're 12 and 13, and they're in the middle of a war. They're getting yeah. tattoos. These, the, this, these weren't well thought out. <laughs> On their face, which any adult would tell you, don't get a face tattoo. It's getting more and more popular these days. It really is. We then see our four clones on bikes traveling through a forested area, and in the distance we see a commando droid cocking a sniper rifle, and a yellow target emerges on Rex's chest. I don't know if you guys are like this, but I love me some some sniper action. In movies, just in general, I, I still haven't seen American Sniper, which I should. I have the Blu-ray, and I just haven't watched it yet. It's a lot of, it's a lot of look at that acting. Is that right? Bradley yeah. Cooper is working I, very hard in that movie. Man, I like Bradley Cooper and I like Clint Eastwood films. And I just haven't taken the time. Um, both of you shook your heads at that. Did you ever get a chance to watch uh, Unforgiven, TJ? No. <laughs> it's on the HBO. It's on my list. That one's really good. That one's real good. It said the Daniel Mother. And if you, if you take uh, that movie and mix it with the birdcage, you get Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> which I will say that is not my joke. I wish that it was, but that is a, that is a, that is from a reduced Shakespeare company play. And it is one of the five best jokes I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong. Right. Any word on sniper movies? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I don't really, I, as the total antithesis of what you just said, I don't actually like sniper movies. Like they, no, they, not for you. They just they make me feel anxious. I I think that's why I like them. Well, that's how I spend the waking hours of my life. So I guess I just don't really enjoy it. <laughs> I think there's 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 something about the not knowing where the danger is coming from when, especially for soldiers. Like it, we could have a whole conversation about being at a concert and not knowing where the danger is coming from. But like when you're, uh, like thinking about the the sniper stories that are really interesting to me, it's it has so much to do with that that sort of the the ability to enact your your goal without the the quote unquote victim having any kind of knowledge or way to protect themselves. Totally. Yeah, the um there's a World War Two one about a Russian he's a sniper. He's uh Watson in the Oh, 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 oh. Um I almost said it as a joke and then I was like, no, that's not what you're talking about. And then it is. It's enemy at the gates, right? Yeah. Yeah. Him and Thank him you. and I think Rachel Vice is in that too, isn't she? Enemy at the Gates is a great sniper movie. Um, Full Metal Jacket, which we reference co constantly in regards to the clones, is has a 
worthy. It's not great, I don't think, but it's got a worthy sniper element to it at the end. The first half of that movie is brilliant. The second half, you know, you can take it or leave it. But the Full Metal Jacket ends with a very young girl who's Vietnamese, who's a sniper. Makes that really interesting. And then movies like JFK have the sniper side to them. Well, in this scene, the commando droid... In range. Take the shot. Hits him in the chest. Protect the captain. Takes a shot at Rex. Jesse and Hardcase, who we haven't met yet, but we'll talk about, go hunting the sniper. And the medic on the team kicks. Goes back to, to help Rex. Takes a look at him. Radios. Jesse, you better get back here. And there's a real significant injury. And it is the case, as TJ was saying, we weren't sure that Rex was going to survive this episode, given all the foreshadowing that they are clearly putting putting out up front. Right. We cut back to Kenobi, Chris, and Cody, who have found a dead droid and have essentially decapitated him because the droid has memory, you know, in their, in their mechanical innards. What do you have? Cody says. We've broken the access codes and powered up the droid's guidance system. According to his memory logs, he fired the emergency thrusters on the escape pod to avoid a mid-air collision. This isn't important, but as I was watching it, I thought this was an interesting move that often occurs in science fiction. And we see it elsewhere in Star Wars, where you are searching somebody's brain for intel. The Vulcan death grip is about this. I'm gonna or, or no, no. What does Spock do? He does the mind the mind meld. Oh, mind meld. Yeah, that's it. That's what I meant. Sorry. <laughs> the death the death grip is about knocking people out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One is incapacitating. The other is just looking for clues. Well, and it's just a it's just a film thing in general, right? Like you discover in the you know a wounded soldier of the opposing team and you pick them up and and yeah. you use them whether they're a living person who's still alive and can tell you or yeah in this case you you pull it out of their their memory bank see it all over the place in star wars with you know now your highness we're going to discuss the location of the rebel base well they they pull they pull 3PO's memories and uh um the hell's the last Star Wars movie called? Rise of, Rise like, of they, Skywalker. This is we're we're, we're killing it. Uh, they they pull C three PO's memories in Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Uh, when they get on the when they get on the what spice planet with Carrie Russell, they they have to extract what he knows. That's a good mm. example of the droid having this because it's normally humans in Star Wars. It's Kylo Ren pulling things from Poe or pulling things from Rey. It's also interesting just to continue to add to our um, hashtag droids are people conversation. The idea that there could be some real danger to the memory and person of C-3PO when this is done to him, mm -hmm. I find very interesting. Yeah. When the Republic does it here, though, it's more innocuous. It's more they're not doing damage to a human being. But this has been, it hasn't been in the news recently, but it was a big topic 10, 15 years ago mm -hmm. in America in terms of black ops sites, in terms of we have enemy combatants who are in our prisons and we are seeking to, what, what is the moral use of gaining information from those who you are in conflict with? And to what degree are we allowed to work 
quote unquote work to get that information. Correct. How hard are we allowed to push? Are you saying we shouldn't be able to torture people to obtain information for them? I'm saying it's worth worth discussing. Oh Daniel. man. Sorry, I, in my mind it's still 2004. <laughs> One of the things again that Star Wars does is it I mean here it's paint it's not even really painted as torture. It's clearly you're just plugging in the head of a machine and finding out what's in there. I don't like slippery slope arguments, but there there it is the case that there is certainly a scale here in terms of extracting information from somebody else in terms of the pain that the victim experiences as it were and how do, how do you wrestle with that and here it's really on the light side but it's worth noting that that's what's taking place yeah there are there are there are clinical and safe ways to do a lot of things and then there are the not safe sort of street way to do things right kenobi says Collision with what? Another escape pod. There was no time to correct for the steeper glide path, which is why this droid's pod crashed. Can you pinpoint the landing zone for the other pod? I can put us within two to three clicks of it, sir. Alert the men. We've picked up the scent. Daniel and I are big fans of when Kenobi goes English, decides to tell us that the game is afoot right here. (laughs) Yeah, Obi-Wan Kenobi breaks out his inner Roger Moore. (laughs) Good hunting image here. There's a fox to be cut, <laughs> chaps. Speaking of about MacGuffins earlier, like the in the in the beginning of this story, the bad guy is seeking the MacGuffin, and the good guy is speak, seeking the bad guy, and now they're both looking for the MacGuffin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's again the case that here's the big story, like when you go to. Wikipedia or StarWars.com, they are going to talk about this as a major engagement between Republican separatist forces. It's the you know it's the it's the siege of Seleucami or something like that. But really, there's this event taking place. But we're going to get really micro here and focus in on one person who's injured in the battle, and really just focus on his story. And the battle is kind of secondary. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's important. It's part of the history. And yet what we really care about is the individual. Cut back to Rex on the ground surrounded by soldiers. How bad? Pretty bad. I need to remove his armor to see the full extent of the damage. Those snipers might have called for backup. Unless we want to start getting picked off one by one, we should find better cover first. Jesse looks at some animals nearby that look like a cross between an anteater and a cow. These are called eopi. And they are responsible for some of the comic missteps in The Phantom Menace. This is the flatulence animal. There's a Jar Jar Binks scene. Oh, yeah. My brain was overloading thinking of all the places that there are comic missteps in The Phantom Menace. And it was just, there's just too many to, to focus on. Might be out. a couple. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I've apparently blocked this out. I don't even remember it. It's when he's working on the Je- pod racer, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> Jesse says, Wait a minute. Those critters are domesticated. I like that as just like some moving the plot along. Sir? I think we're on farmland. And where there's a farm, there's usually a farmer. Let's find his homestead. <laughs> he's, he's got his SAT prep ready, so it's like farmland, <laughs> farmer, <laughs> boom. That's... <laughs> it's move, moving the plot along. So they pick up Rex, go to the home of the farm... 
and are greeted by a pink Twi'lek with a French accent and a long rifle. We want no trouble here. B- but is clearly ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> Easy with that weapon, ma'am. We're here as friends. State your business. Our captain's been hurt. We need. I'm no doctor, so just. We have a medic, ma'am. We just need a place to tend him overnight. Mommy, who's... get back inside, both of you. Oh, oh mom. Look, there are some benches out back in the barn. It's the best I can do. That'll be fine, ma'am. Thank you. I don't feel like, just as an aside, I don't really feel like we see children very much in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about that. Well, I don't, I don't even really have that much to say about it other than just the observation that as I was watching this, I was like, oh, you, you yeah. don't see them just being children. Like, obviously, we get a little Anakin in mm-hmm. The Phantom Menace, but they're, they're sort of children in peril, I guess, or, or, or children that will go on to be important. You never just really see kids like yeah. playing and being children and being curious. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's super interesting. Yeah, I agree. They always serve a purpose in the in the storytelling. That's part of why they don't show up very often. This in this episode, they're a thousand percent about motive for cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah, I mean they kind they kind of move some of the plot along at points, but it's it's giving cut motive. Y- yes, later on. Right. Well, and I guess I guess moreover by that you don't see an unbroken family. Ooh. You know, like most of the families you see in Star Wars, it's like it's been a family on which tragedy has been visited horribly. Some, mm-hmm. a, one of the parents is already dead, or they've already lost a child, or like, or the family has been split in half, and people are separated across galaxies. With this one, you you see a mom, a dad, and their two children, and they're like yep. having dinner, and the kids are playing, and the parents clearly have their own life and and care about each other, and they clearly care about the children, and and this this is just a family. Yeah, that I don't mm-hmm. feel like that happens very much in the Star Wars universe either. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. So the the Jedi kids. Uh, we have, but again, they're disposable. Like they're 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 not really characters. Oh sure. But, well, but that's that's yeah. that's kind of the point. Like like all of the the placement of children within this universe. When we see children, yeah, it's 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 for a purpose. These kids aren't ju- don't just happen to be there. They're there to give us context for who Cut is. Good point. Agreed. In the barn, Rex is going to wake up. What? What happened? Commando droids took a pot shot that would have gone straight through your heart had it been two inches to the left. I can't move my arm. You have some nerve damage. Understood. Now, patch me up and let's get on with it. Sir, you're in no condition. It will heal, but it'll take time. We're getting underway, Kicks. That's an order. Sir, as the team medic, when it comes to the health of the men, including you, I outrank everyone. So I respectfully order you, sir, to get some... Excuse me. Really like that last line. Yeah. I have two things to say about this. First one is sort of throwaway. I know this is a cartoon, blah, 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 but dude got shot straight through the chest, like right in the middle of the chest. It missed his heart, thankfully, but it went through (laughs) his chest. Like he has an exit wound. I've seen I don't, like, seen a lot of clones down with apparently way less damage <sighs> through his chest. <laughs> Sniper shot through the chest. Okay. Uh, <laughs> also, 
<laughs> with regards to that last line, we're we're set up with Rex as this re- like this strong, in charge like like get a move on kind of character, and and here he is saying, okay, let's do this, and and someone who. And now he has to yeah. answer to somebody else. That's what I see too. It and it and, feels like he's willing to yeah. because, as we sort of previously talked about with Rex, following orders and following duty and following the chain of command is so important to him that when it is clearly stated by the medic, "I outrank you," it almost seems like it's not even a yeah. it's not even a second thought that like oh okay well then I guess. Uh, to you, I will defer because you outrank me, and that is the way the rules are. And and that's the only thing that stopped him too. Like yeah. he he has a hole in his chest, <laughs> and he's saying, "Let's get going." And the only thing that stops him is who is technically now his superior, saying it's an order for you to stay here. It also makes me think Doctor McCoy was not throwing his weight around nearly enough in Star Trek. Like if he was outranking everybody, that guy got pushed around a lot. Just saying. Well, not by choice. <laughs> his, his upfront anger clearly <laughs> muddles his his authority. I may not delve into movies that are being released or TV shows being released as depthfully as I do here, but I'm just deeply appreciative of how they are going to set up existential issues. They want to get this character we care about to a spot where he's absolutely considering his inner life motives and what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Before they do that, they're going to take away his physical abilities, but here they are stripping him of power. And for this character, it matters. And that doesn't matter for everybody. But this guy, it certainly does. You are being demoted. And by the way, you your arm can't work and you need to lay down because I said so. And then we're going to go to a spot where he gets to see himself 10 years in the future and have a conversation with his future self, as it were. Well, and also, yeah, they all leave. Too, and that's another yes. thing. Everybody who he has command over then says, and we're going to go. Yes. So true. Good yep. luck. Here's, exactly. here's a blaster. Yeah, he does He does not have a meaningful conversation with someone like Cut unless he's powerless. Oh, that's good. That's exactly right. And abandoned by all of his friends. And yeah, if he was still in charge, he would have arrested Cut. Yep. That's right. That's exactly right. Like, no question. Right away. And you can tell he wants to right away. Right. Again, I mean, I I feel like I'm just saying this every single episode. That is stellar insight into what it means to be a human being, into understanding how human beings actually act when they have power. And they they are understanding that and putting good people in positions where they can actually have character development. Right. Just just masterful. And it just um, it just also does feel like human nature in general, right? Like sometimes you have to be completely <laughs> sometimes you have to completely 
have everything yeah. knocked down and taken away from you before you're willing to like learn lessons and do introspection. Right. And it's done with efficacy of language very quickly. I mean, we're only five minutes into the episode and yet they've set the pieces in place to where they can elevate something worthwhile. Um, we're going to have just one character introduction in this episode and it's kicks. We're going to talk about hard case in the future, but kicks just appears to be the medic, but He's a serious soldier. He has a tattoo on the side of his head that says a good droid is a dead droid. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I was looking at that one. I'm like, what's that guy's head tattoo say? <laughs> the Arbesh, you know. I mean, you can't always get it the first time you look at it. You got to do some research. I took it in high school, but I just never kept up with it, obviously. So <laughs> I wish I did. It's a dead language. They all said you're going to regret. <laughs> Kicks. Interestingly, will not only be in two of the big arcs that we're going to cover, the Umbara arc, which is a battle, and the arc of season six, which is often called the Clone Conspiracy, which has a lot of Order 66 stuff going on. And as a medic, he's going to play heavily into the story of the inhibitor chips. But fun fact about Kicks, we know this, he is also known as the last clone trooper. In canon material, not on film, Kix eventually becomes a prisoner of war. He holds high-value information and is removed by Dooku into a cruiser during battle. And as the Republic seeks to rescue Kix, the droids aboard put Kix in a stasis chamber. So it's kind of an image, kind of like Khan in Star Trek. He, he's put asleep and sent far, far away. The ship enters hyperspace and ends up crashing on a deserted planet, and Kix is awakened by pirates 50 years after Order 66. And these pirates are looking for treasure, and they've stumbled upon Dooku's treasure. And they finally get it, and it's this clone in a stasis chamber. And they open it up, and it's this medic. And um, he is the character who... This is... Sartrean, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre talks about the meaning of life only coming, you only know the meaning of your life at the last instant when you're able to look back at your entire story and say this is what it was all about right before you die. That's essentially who Kix is. He is the clone. There's been a million clones, but he's the last one. And he, from a space, you know, a few decades after all the other clones have died, can look back and say, what was it all about? Real interesting character on that front. You don't know this at this moment, but this is who this is. Everything you just described, I would watch. Right? You know what I mean? Like that, that would be a great, mm. just a, a one season Star Wars show, animated or live action. That just, that sounds so interesting to me. And by the way, Disney, we're ready to make that pitch. I re realize that it's already on paper, but <laughs> we're the ones yeah. to bring it to life. If, if, if you don't take us up on uh, the show we pitched in one of our previous podcasts. Two Jedis. Two, the last two Jedis. <laughs> we'll, t we'll do this one. Apparently, the pirates are, are finding him around the time of The Force Awakens. See, I would rather watch that than The Force Awakens. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about uh, the way that Kix handles his situation. Mm -hmm. Like He's the medic. He's the one in charge. I mean, think, like Dr. Bones would have done something totally different in this scenario but but the the way that kicks sort of firmly but gently says actually because i'm the medic i outrank you mm -hmm. like he's he's not being a jerk but he is 
being clear in a way that like that Rex needs to hear this, but he's not doing it in a commanding sort of way is it's great bedside manner. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it makes me want to see this character evolve. I want to see him. Because he's also still kind and deferential because he still calls him sir. And then he kind of says, so I suggest you lay back down, Mm -hmm. sir. Like he, it's not, I'm in charge. And as part of my authority, I need to take away some of yours. It's, it's still very kind and deferential, but also saying, so in my expert opinion, this is what you need. We make fun of how Palpatine, the clues are all out there for Palpatine being the one who's actually orchestrating the Clone Wars. What? But (laughs) (laughs) But alongside those are the clues for the clones being controlled by inhibitor chips and what it means to have choice, which we're going to see in this episode, and what it means to be controlled. And... A primary character that's consistently kind of playing the Sherlock Holmes as kicks in some of the future arcs that we're going to look at, because because he's a medical technician, he is he's actually concerned with the mental health of those he serves with, and so that's why he ends up learning before anyone else. Well, not before anyone else, but he's one of those who discovers early on how this is working, and that's. That's how this that episode ends up playing out. It's not it's not on film again. It's in the it's in the secondary literature, but he essentially is able to eventually find out, and so he has to be taken by Dooku and hidden because of it. Super interesting sure. there. Last last thing, and we've we've hit this a handful of times, but there's a scene in Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, which I think is the best doc- documentary ever made in which he shows a picture of a guy who's in his 90s who was a drummer boy in the Civil War, and he's the last Civil War soldier. And you kind of just see him, and he's in a chair, and he's surrounded by his family. And he's, he's well-loved, but he's clearly looking like it's almost, it's almost over. But he's the only one at that point in time who was actually there. And there's something about that character in... We, we hinted at this in our conversation pri- prior to recording that they're using that trope in some of the stuff they do with Captain America and some of the stuff that mm-hmm. they're doing with uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I love that idea. You're the only one who's left who was there. What do you mm-hmm. have to say? But that's who this character is for the Clone Wars. And also, what does your life look like? You know, who, yeah. who is your community? Who are, who are the people that you can relate to? If you are the only one, how do you do that? Yep. Mm-hmm. God, that's a good. Which I think that. they do really well in with with Steve Rogers in in mm-hmm. in the first several moments. You see him out of the ice, as it were. Like what, what is mm-hmm. the kind of loneliness that there must be with that identity? Mm-hmm. Right. I like that character. Grogu, in some ways, is that character. He's the last of the Padawans that was at that that was there you know, prior to the destruction of the Republic. Um, There's something that's kind of of that sort with um, Teddy Kennedy. And this is the only other person that's coming to mind. It's like, I'm the last of the Kennedys, as it were. I was there with all the others, but I'm the only one 
that's left from that nuclear family that was such royalty. Being the last one, you're the one that turned the lights off. What does it look like to be that that person? I went through the most monumental events during this period, and now I'm the one to turn the lights off. The last book of the Bible is written by a man named John. John, in theory, let's just imagine that Revelation was written by the disciple John. He's the one to turn the lights off. All Jesus died. All the other disciples died. Even Paul's died. He's the he's the last one, and he's he's telling he's culminating the whole New Testament. What does it look like? Turn the lights off. I just like that trope. I don't know if that counts as a trope, but yeah. Oh yeah, the the last guy. That's definitely a trope. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. I'm I'm interested to see what happens with the British monarchy on this front. Right. Like. Like she is, I I honestly think that she is the last great monarch. Yeah, and she's not. She doesn't have any power anymore. I would totally agree with you. Love that image. Sue winners. If there's not enough, uh, that's plenty. Uh, thank you, uh... Sue. And then her daughter comes in. It's first and second time we've seen her kids. I told you to stay in the house. I couldn't help it, Mom. You got away. And then she looks at Rex. You look like my daddy. We clearly know what's going on, but it's a good little, I don't know if that counts as foreshadowing, but it tells you they're going to go somewhere here. It, it surprises you. Yeah, there you go. Because you're in the middle of nowhere. Well, you're in the middle of nowhere, and the way this story feels like it's told, it's it's the Domino Squad feels like they're the first group of clones to ever kind of be like, we're individuals. Mm-hmm. So the notion that mm-hmm. apparently some other dude has done this already is like, wait, what? Yeah. Okay. A guy got so far along in his quest for individuality that he started a life. Mm. Shea, don't bother the soldier. Now get inside with your brother. Yes, mom. My husband is away delivering our first harvest. Do you require anything else? No. Thank you, Sue. Mm. Resume the search without me. Jesse, you're in command. I'll be fine. So they drop that hint, but they go back to business. I think that's real common in terms of storytelling. You kind of give some hints, but uh, you quickly move to something else. Mm, right. I can't think of another kind of line like this where somebody has a hint of this sort. They look at someone, recognize them, say, you look like person x I, I just i love that as a narrative device i couldn't think of any but i really enjoy that as a move here i'm trying i know there's i know there's stuff i just my yeah. my brain is is coming up with nothing tweet us examples if, if you're listening there you go <laughs> we then see kenobi on lookout on top of his walker there's our escape pod any sign of grievous Looks deserted. He must be heading to a second escape pod. Captain Rex, come in, please. It's Jesse, sir. Rex was injured. What's his condition? He'll be fine, but we had to find him shelter for the night. Grievous is on the move. We're headed to the west. Swing around and we can meet up at the final escape pod. We're going to need all the firepower we can muster. Roger that, sir. We're speeding towards you. This is where the episode turns for me. Um, that's all exposition. 
But we cut back to the farm, and we see Rex by himself. And he's woken up by the eopi who lick his face. And it's kind of a funny, it's again one of those funny kid moments. But the camera begins to pull back. And all of a sudden, the, the focus enlarges. And we realize that this is a point of view shot. Mm-hmm. And somebody is looking at Rex from outside of a window. And this is a very horror film kind of feel for me. You are being watched hasn't been part of this story. None of the horror film tropes have come into the story really yet. But there is a ton of them in this episode. And here is where it starts. It's somebody is watching you from outside. The the house and the family are definitely set up as they, they are so far removed from anything closely resembling any type of conflict that mm-hmm. that you're lulled into security. Like, okay, he got shot, but he'll be fine. The the troops have gone, so now there's no real reason to think anything bad is going to happen here because these children and their mom are clearly enjoying their lives as farmers out here. And then all of a sudden, there's there's kind of a feeling of anxiety or panic. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the storytelling-wise, there's... the we're c- clearly trying to hide the identity of the father. Yeah. If if it was anyone other than a clone, we would have seen him watching. We wouldn't have seen it from his perspective. Mm-hmm. We would have seen him watching. That's it. Yeah, he would have been in the background behind the window, visible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because you show Rex from his point of view, you are in the same moment concealing the identity of the watcher. Right. Ah, we should be there by now. We are sent there almost. You had better be interpreting the coordinates correctly. Oh no. We're almost there, sir. One click out, straight ahead. <laughs> Losing power. Further evidence of Grievous's displeasure at his servants mm-hmm. is that, like, he doesn't care that they have so little power that they're they can't put words in the correct order. Yeah, but he he is going to be upset if they're misreading the coordinates. <laughs> And a a you could be completely incapable of normal functionality, but so long as you are reading the coordinates, I don't, don't misread care. the map. The term "click" is derived from the term "kilometer," so one click is one ah. kilometer. So perfect. That's for our one UK listener. That's that's like six miles. Ten clicks right? is like six miles. I don't it, know. And how. I only know that because it said it in the Google thing. So if you said ten clicks, it'd be like six miles, <laughs> so like six and a half miles, something like that. I can only think of two examples, I'm sure there's more, of generals driving their soldiers through brutal, uh, lethal conditions. One is Alexander the Great. He tries to take over all of Asia, fails, has to turn around, and decides to march his soldiers across a desert. He loses half of them. He loses 12,000 of his 30,000 men. And that's kind of the image here. It's like this is... It's just, it's all about power and glory. Um, the other is Napoleon, you know, trying to invade Russia. 
basically anyone trying to invade. I heard, I heard there's uh, wisdom on this front. <laughs> yeah, never get involved in a land war in Asia. <laughs> or go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> <laughs> but the, that's the character here, yeah? Wallace Shawn? <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that fits. I like telling kids watching this on Nickelodeon, there's some people you really shouldn't trust because they don't care about you, and this is how they will treat you when they're using all of your resources up and then they're going to abandon you at the end. If only we could teach adults that lesson. Look, it's hard, man. Adults aren't as smart as kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it, it made me think of, of all things, another cartoon, the movie Balto. I haven't seen this. It's it's TJ, have you? I when I was It's really not very good. Um it. but it's it's about this it, it's a real story. It's about this this team of dogs trying to deliver uh, really important medicine in in I believe Alaska and they're sled dogs and it's and the one there's right? one dog who is like in charge of it and his name is Steel and he's just forcing these other dogs on and it's like a blizzard and nobody can see and all these dogs are like please stop. We got to turn back and he like and all these dogs die and blah 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 and and it it made me think of that out of nowhere and is balto the one with the red nose no that's that's a different sort of folk fairy tale <laughs> kevin bacon is the voice of of balto and steven spielberg huh. produced it who is friends with george lucas so really star wars is just a couple of levels removed from kevin bacon cut back to rex in the barn it's dark and again the horror film uh, someone grabs a farm tool that looks like it could impale a teenager. Rex hears a sound, goes for his gun. The intruder quickly hits the blaster away, and we see a man. Who are you? Who looks like a clone. What are you doing here? Dun dun dun. But with a ponytail. <laughs> right. And, and like cool sideburns, too. You're a clone. So, I see the war has finally made its way out here. And I guess I can expect a visit from some droids soon. What's your number and rank? <laughs> My name is Laquane. Cut Laquane. And I'm just a simple farmer. You're a deserter. <laughs> well, I like to think I'm merely exercising my freedom to choose. To choose not to kill for a living. That is not your choice to make. You swore an oath to the Republic. You have a duty. Right there, I think, is the heart of this episode. It's about choice. Yep. You're going to talk about how human beings have freedom or not. Real popular in science fiction and fantasy to bring in this topic. In fact, I would argue there's probably not a great science fiction or fantasy you know, world that doesn't eventually hit on choice. It's in The Matrix. It's all over Star Trek. <laughs> it's in Star Wars. We keep going. Well, especially any time you bring in mechanical alteration which eventually leads to full-on robotics mm -hmm. or cloning mm -hmm. that is the big issue with ai and cloning is freedom one of the things about colors there's a spectrum of colors red orange yellow green etc we understand what red is because we can see green we understand what yellow is because we can see blue when you bring in 
robots and clones, all of a sudden we're more self-aware about our own freedom and choices because we realize those things don't have it. It makes us much more self-aware. I think that's why. It's these. It's as we move further and further into a mechanical future, we start to understand more and more of ourselves. Data is a fantastic character because it exposes something not in Data. It exposes and, something in Picard. And, and everybody else mm-hmm. around Data. Right? Right. And that's why we love Data is because Data is a window into some of the things that make us most unique and interesting. And because he is an advanced life form who shouldn't, but actually doesn't really want anything more than to be, to be a human being. Yeah. And to experience the things that human beings experience. Well, it's for our benefit, but it, it it's not that just that he exposes, that he forces us to think about our freedom and, and the inner workings of like how we make decisions, but he f- forces the characters on screen to do that in, in asking questions about like, yep. why do you laugh? Why, like, what is a joke? What, like all of these things that, that he's exploring for himself forces the characters to figure out a way to explain something that we have the luxury of not having to explain because we're surrounded with people who understand it already. One of the things that's so toxic about our culture right now is we can't see the people on the other side of the aisle as those who actually are asking questions that would make us say, this is why I think what I think. It's just all noise, volume, rage, screaming. Have a conversation. Learn something about yourself. You can't get there. Right. Central idea here, though, emerges. Do the clones have choice? Rex assumes that Cut has made an oath that is binding for his entire life. Cut was grew up on Camino, apparently. When is it the case that that Cut gets a chance to self-actualize and make decisions that are actually meaningful and not a 15-year-old signing up for the Navy. Actually, it's even worse for Cut. It would have been, he's an eight-year-old signing up for the Navy. Well, and the implication of swearing an oath is that your oath was a choice. Yeah. And now you have to stick to that because you oh, made this decision. Right. But they're all programmed to swear the oath. Even even worse, the Kaminians, who we know are terrible characters, are the ones who are overseeing Kamino in insisting that the, the clones be raised in a certain way, taught in a right. certain way, and obviously indoctrinated to get to that spot. Yeah. <coughs> right. Well, and that's why Rex has clearly never been around anyone to challenge his worldview because... There it is. The the Kaminoans and, and the Jedi and everybody else. It's like, war is the only way. This is what you are literally created for. He He's never been around, you know, like, like he is 15 years old, and 15-year-olds usually believe the things they're brought up to believe and have been told mm. to believe, and it isn't until you go out to college or out into the real world that you are suddenly exposed to ideas that are wildly different from the things you have sort of been in the things that have been ingrained in you to believe and rex has only been ingrained with these unhealthy toxic ideas of what 
this oath is and what it means, yep. what what good is, which is actually not good, and everything. And nobody's forced him to think about that. So I think that's why he's got this sort of like old testamental rigid view of of what duty is. Yep. Well, but I I want to challenge that just a little bit because my justification for this won't come for a few minutes but i think i think what's being challenged here is that rex in choosing the army in choosing hit to stick with his oath is exercising his own free will because later cut while they're having dinner cut points out that he knows that rex has thought about these things because they're the same person. Sure. So so Cut makes the decision to leave and start a family. Rex makes the decision to stay. And the the way that Rex thinks about that is in itself a choice to stay loyal to his oath because it is an oath. That is his but choice. The, but this, I, I agree with you. But, but in this episode, it feels like it's the first time that that is a conscious choice. Yes, agreed. I, I, that's what I should have said. A conscious choice is, yeah. is what I meant. Yeah, but I totally agree with you. Yeah, Conver- within the conversation about whether or not these beings have free will, the challenge here is that they are when they are choosing to go along with their programming. That is an act of their will. Yes, I agree. Cup responds to Rex. He says, "I, I have a duty. You're right, but it's to my family." He has clearly shifted allegiance. Is that okay? And he asked that. Does that count or do you still plan to turn me in? Do I have a choice? Great line here. Lots of secondary meaning because this is going to be central to this character, not only in this episode, but throughout. Is it the case that Rex has a choice? Can Rex do something other than fight in this war? That we know is is at best a useless war. Um, themes of choice. What do you guys think? I think yes, and the evidence of that is talking to Rex in the in the character of Cut. Like, yep. and like TJ pointed out, and, and like we said, Cut tells him, "I am the I am the closest thing to you that there is." So, so yes, <laughs> I mean, clearly he can, and the proof is in the living, breathing guy in front of him, and he's just never consciously thought about that before. Yeah. I love the uh, the idea that you guys pitched earlier that this may be the first time he's ever had the space. Mm. And again, show creators, he gets shot in the chest, loses his friends, is abandoned. Let's do some inner work with this character, who we all love and respect. Yeah, because <laughs> sometimes it takes a near-death experience to to make you realize some stuff. Well, and it could even be as simple as is that he's never seen a clone do anything other than fight. Right. You, you hard to imagine an alternative when you never see an alternative. It's a great line. I wanted to say this earlier in our conversation, but one of the best things that most Americans could have happen to them is for them to go live in a different country for just a month or two, mm-hmm. just to get just a little bit different perspective on different rhythms than the thousand mile an hour pace that we decide 
to run at. My my parents talk about that all the time. I mean, they they did three and yeah, a half three I, and a half years in Kenya, and and that is a thing that they both over the course of my brother and I's lives have said. A lot of the a lot of the things we're sort of told that we're meant to care about as Americans, we're not really that interested in, and it took almost four years in another place to realize we don't want to be part of this game. Yeah. Hmm. Aristotle wants to argue everything that we pursue is about happiness. What do we think happiness is? And every choice that we make is aiming at happiness. But how you define happiness matters. One of the things that's interesting about Cut is he is clearly the first clone that's elevated a different answer to the question, what is happiness for Rex? Because mm-hmm. everybody else, Rex is the leader. I mean, he's the the cheerleader in some ways of this is what this is all about. But Cut's not there. And Cut easily dismisses it, Rex's answers, and says, you know what, I'm not there anymore. I've moved, I've moved on. Mm-hmm. One of the true treasures of COVID were the Julie Nolke comedy sketches on YouTube. Oh my God, I love her so much. Okay, well that's, I mean, that's incredible. You know, especially given the Australian wildfires. The what? Oh yeah. Because I mean, those are pretty, like I think those are gonna be the defining feature of 2020. Yeah, you'd think. Oh no? Not even a little bit. Really? Because they're, they're a pretty big deal. Yeah, your definition of a pretty big deal is gonna change for sure. Wow. If you have not seen these, they're worth Googling. It's an actress, comedian, who put together performances where she has a conversation with herself. And it's generally her talking to herself three months prior to whatever crazy thing is going to happen. And she did this all through quarantine. <laughs> she, did you see the most recent one? She dropped one last week, which was explaining the pandemic to me a year ago. Yep. Yeah, she's, she is one of the... I would say one of the best content creators I've seen in like the last 10 years. Like she's truth, great writer, great performer, great at all the tech stuff that a lot of performers are not good at. Like she is, she is worth a, a find and a follow. That was the image that kept going through my head while I was watching this episode is that that's actually, it's, they have the same face and they're talking to each other. And one of them is just five years ahead as it were saying what what can you say to yourself five years ago because sometimes even if you are face to face with yourself five years ago you know that five years ago self isn't going to listen to anything that you say (laughs) don't tell me the things that i don't know (laughs) (laughs) and it's such a brilliant move here we brought up the star trek movie insurrection yeah in which this happens with kirk not kirk with uh picard seriously we brought up insurrection a little while back with Picard uh, speaking to his own clone. And it, th- that's a, f- a flip of this because we're cheering for Picard and he's talking to his very younger self. But this is Rex talking to his older self, as it were, and not liking what he's hearing. Point of order. It's actually Star Trek Nemesis. Thank you. I was going to say, I don't remember that in... yeah. Like, I'm trying to, like, remember, okay, F. Murray Abraham and that one lady, and, <laughs> like, I rem- I don't remember him talking to a clone. We specialize in a different Nemesis. universe on this podcast. <laughs> I actually really love Nemesis. Star Trek, yes. so I am ashamed that, uh, I am ashamed that I didn't know that, but, 
Yeah. Because insur- insurrection is the one where it doesn't matter. They find the planet where the um, it ke- the atmosphere keeps That's people right. young. That's right. That's and right. F. Murray Abraham is trying to destroy it because he was, turns out he was is kicked that, off. Is that also the one where Deanna Troy and Riker get married? And there's like the weird sex scene. You're like, why is this in here? And then you're like, oh, Jonathan Frakes directed it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Data is killing a bunch of people. And the way they get him to stop is by Picard singing to him. Yes. Uh, yeah. Modern Major General, is that the one they do? Yeah. Well, the the HMS Pinafore and Gilbert and Sullivan run through Star Trek uh, uh, Next right. Generation. But yeah. I want to end this podcast. We'll we'll. We'll make this a two-parter. A three-parter. With a, with, with a heavier question. If you are Rex in this moment, and say it is the case that you know all the things that you're going to know about how the future is going to play out, you got the Star Wars timeline in your head. What is the right choice at this point in time for you and your future? You have a position. You're in the Grand Army of the Republic. You have a senior military captain's position. You know, what do you do if you know all the things that are going to play out the way they do? Do we have to answer that now or can we wait till next time? (laughs) Here's the thing that hit me as I asked the question is I have no idea what I would do. That's a very complicated situation to be in. You know what I mean? It's not always the case. I don't know that you necessarily just resign immediately and go create a family, you know, on some planet in the outer rim yeah you have people that you care about we've talked about this in the past but like the people that rex cares most about are deeply involved in this struggle and being alongside them matters fighting alongside them matters it's not like the war is going away anytime soon i find this routinely is i'm a, I'm a very committed pacifist as it were but when my country decides we are going to physically engage others in a certain way i find it very difficult to be on an island i'm there on the island of pacifism right alongside advocating for the incredible hulk i thought that was a good joke but apparently it wasn't (laughs) look look at my face i'm laughing (laughs) (laughs) but you know what i mean it's what do you what do you do what what is it that rex could do in this situation that would be meaningful. And maybe it's the case that that's not his story. His story actually plays out in a brilliant, beautiful way that lots of us in terms of looking at it actually cherish. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say, I almost wonder if it becomes a thing where if you're going to make the choice to go back, but you, I guess, know the things you get to know, maybe it makes you work a little harder to fight harder to keep the people you love safe. Like you're gonna right? stay there, but with sort of a vested interest in your in your in your brothers, so to speak. Well, I think that's sort of where he lands toward the end. Is is that he says my family is elsewhere? Yep. Because his brothers are the the people that he fights with. That's that's the people that he will give his life to defend. That's a good place for us to land because in our intro that Daniel and I just released, I said something I kind of regretted and it's that Star Wars is all about power. And after watching this episode, I was quickened and I thought, no, Star Wars is all about family. All the other things that are taking place are superfluous. They're, I mean, it's the world that you live in. I feel like there's, 
I feel like there's different, like love is very powerful. So I actually feel yeah. like that still works. Like there, it, it is powerful to realize that you love people and it's powerful to realize that other people love you. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm going to, I would say you're still right, but. I think one of the things that Hollywood routinely wants to push in into is romance. And clearly there is romance in Star Wars. Blech. But it's very, I don't know that Hollywood elevates family in powerful ways all the time. There's clearly great examples like The Incredibles comes to mind, X-Men comes to mind. Um, I mean, clear uh, the Avengers come come to mind. There's something about family that is also, but those are those are those are in like heightened film, heightened situational films, like just in sort of films that are about day to day. Like there's not yeah. loads of movies about friendship and loving right. your friends, and 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 yeah. lo- there, I mean, there's plenty of indie films, but there's no Hollywood films that are like this is just a load of people who are friends and they deeply and truly love each other mm-hmm. not in a romantic way not in a sexual way it's just people giving a crap about each other profoundly yeah and that's one of the things Filoni really brings to the table is is the family stuff we're going to see this all over the Clone Wars we're going to see it heightened when we get to Rebels because that's all about family but even these non-traditional families like you know I mean what is Din Djarin except for a stepdad, you know? And as we'll see here, Cut is a stepdad. He's he, biologically, he could not have birthed these two kids who he says later on he's willing to give his life for. He's clearly stepped into a family that was a broken family in which, or at least maybe, maybe it's a widow. He's, you know, I don't, we haven't saw, said this yet, but. Cut is in a what looks like it's a nuclear family, but he's an addition. He can't have been the father of these two children because he is twelve years old, thirteen years old. Is that and those kids that, are seven or eight? Is that canon though? I I would have guessed those kids were three or four. Same. One of the uh, artists said that Cut is a stepfather as well on his Twitter feed. Oh, uh, okay, so. I I was watching this just assuming they were his. On one front, we really think this is a stable nuclear family, as it were. Right. On another front, I did tried to do a deep dive on stepfathers in fiction. Like, who are the stepfathers that are really praiseworthy? I got zero. I could find nothing online. I don't know if you guys can think of anything, but it's just not very common. Right. So I'm sure there's stuff out there, and but, I but I just couldn't in my in my cursory search I couldn't find anything. But I think in terms of talking about I I know, I know Jeff you don't really care for this film, but but I think of the I think of the end of Mrs. Doubtfire, mm-hmm. where where the voiceover of Mrs. Doubtfire talking about what family is and means can mean so many different things. Some people live with both of their mom and dad. Some people live with their grandparents. Some people live with only one parent. Some people have families that are mixed. And, and that doesn't really matter because cause I think she says the only thing that matters is, is, is as long as your family, lo- as long as there's love, that's what actually makes something a family. And I think that's, yeah. that's the point of that film. And I think that's, the, I think that's what we're, the point of what I think we're trying to say now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only good stepfather I could think of was from Royal Tenenbaums. 
uh, <laughs> yeah, Danny Glover's character. So good. The end of that crushes me. Just cuts me hard. Danny Glover looking at Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller who has lost his wife and Ben Stiller who doesn't have a good father. And Danny Glover is standing there and Ben Stiller says to him, no, I lost my wife. And Danny Glover, who lost his own wife to stomach cancer, looks at him and says, I know. Uh, just that, that whole scene just rips me apart. That was the only stepfather I could think of that, that, that had any value. Um, but that was, that's a good one. Also, Danny Glover, you don't get enough credit, man. That guy, seriously, that guy's such a good actor, dude. You're a you're a superstar. Yeah. Feels like feels like bad fathers are pretty prevalent in a lot of Wes Anderson films. I think just film, <laughs> yes, but stories. How, okay, stories <laughs> in yeah, stories. True. But but I, I just mean like every Wes Anderson film has a piece of shit dad yeah. in it. Like Bill Murray in in The Life Aquatic is a horrible father. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's we have the coffee table book, and it's, <laughs> that's <laughs> I right. I think it's all about bad fathers. Uh, Ray Fiennes, even though he's not the actual father, like in 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 um, Grand Budapest, he's a terrible father figure. He's horrible. On the MCU front, actually, if you look up Daddy Issues, Marvel, there's <laughs> it's just everybody. it may be my favorite video essay on YouTube. Um, these folks do a deep dive into the father issues in the MCU, and it's just tremendous. It cut it cut me so hard. And I don't even ha- I don't even have daddy issues, and <laughs> like that was, and I'm in denial. So because it's because it's 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 Tony Stark, it's Thor, it's, oh, it's everybody, it's yeah. uh, Peter Quill. Yeah, he, based off of the trailers, I'm going to assume that it's um, Natasha Romanoff for for Black Widow. Um, Thanos is a terrible father. Gamora and Nebula. Captain America doesn't have a father. He's if you want to talk about father figures, he's got one of the good ones, and he gets taken away from him. Stanley Tucci's character as a father figure is a good guy. Yep, totally. Well, and and uh, good stepfathers, uh, Ant Man's <gasps> or yeah, fa- Paul Rudd's wife, father in laws. That's is that right. would that count as a stepfather father? No, I'm I'm thinking uh the stepfather of uh Ant Man's daughter, which I cannot remember that actor's name. Yeah, it's um I'm gonna look it up because I can I can see his face. Paul Rudd's ex wife's boyfriend slash husband. I, man, that's a I I'm he's, he's great. He's a cop. Okay. And he's kind of a jerk to Paul Rudd in the beginning of Ant Man, but because Paul Rudd is a piece of in the beginning of Ant Man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's pause here. Any last words on this episode? Bobby Cannavale. <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh-huh. No, that's his name. That's I the know guy's it, name. but I you're going to fuck up my editing. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I think it's really funny that the important thing is the B story. Yeah? Yeah. Just from a storytelling perspective, like, the point of this episode is, like, the, the good part of this episode is, is the secondary part. <laughs> I, watching it, I didn't really assume that was this was meant to be the B story. Like as I watched it, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is." I felt like everything else was the B story, and this was the principal story. But may, mm-hmm. maybe I, uh, maybe that's not right. It's a good intro for what we're gonna do. Apparently, TJ, when we have you on, we're gonna just always divide these into two parts because we got lots of that's things thing, to get man. off our chest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe it'll be better when Daniel's back. <laughs> 
so that we have more regular conversations. Right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't all see each other only when we do this. <laughs> what, what other benefits are there to owning your own coffee shop except for getting all this stuff out with your friends? Exactly. That's <laughs> part of why I own my own place. <laughs> hey, friends, these episodes take tremendous work and effort. It would mean the world to us. If you would take just two seconds, give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. And as with all podcasts, this one's only going to survive if you share it. If you share it with friends who love a galaxy far, far away, you can find our binge list at StarWarsBinge.com and you can share your thoughts with us on the Twitters. Any last thoughts, gentlemen? No, we got it. I got nothing. Hey, big thanks to TJ Wilson. He's a smart man. Indeed. Always thinking on his feet. He's the Daniel Mothershed. My quote doesn't work because it's from the second half of the episode, but it was going to be funny. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Jeff Cook. When it comes to the health of the men, including you, I outrank everyone. You know why, Daniel? Because this is the way. Because this is the way. This is the way. (laughs) This is the way. Well done. I got to go to a funeral. What? Oh, yeah. I forgot that was happening.